Defectors. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Academic Defectors. I am your host, Jillian Marshall, PhD, and I have a feeling that every week I'm probably going to introduce the guest with some iteration of, this is a very special guest this week. And it's true, every guest is special. But this week is particularly noteworthy because for the first time in Academic Defectors history, and I do mean history, I have the pleasure of speaking with a fellow humanities scholar who, of course, studied history. Brian Rutledge, PhD, pursued his doctorate at Cornell University, where we both started in 2011 and both graduated in 2018. His dissertation was titled South African Readers and Consumer Capitalism, 1932 to 1962, and his research was supported by the Fulbright Foundation through the Fulbright Hayes Fellowship. Now, unfortunately, Brian and I temporarily lost touch after graduation, perhaps because we were both trying to figure out how to use the experience that we'd gained over the past seven years to restart our career in a completely different industry than the one that we'd trained for. But let me tell you, if you want to get back in touch with old friends, a great way to do that is to write a book. Because last summer, I got a call from a California number I picked up, and who was it but Brian? Now, it's pretty well known both inside and outside the academy that your chances of getting a stable job as a humanities scholar are notoriously slim. But as today's guest story indicates, if you have savvy, you can definitely make it work. Although, as we'll also soon hear, Brian clearly has a safe backup career as well as a comedian. So, without further ado, Brian Rutledge, PhD. What wait the the name is academic defectors? You got it. Because I, I just want to go on record to start that I'm not a defector. I'm I'm a loyalist. However, it's what happened was I didn't change. The university changed. Okay, I'm, I'm just kidding. My big thing with why like why academic life in general. I had a bumpy undergrad world where. I think it always sounds odd to me when people talk about their undergraduate experience in a very resume sounding way. For me, it was not smooth. So after high school, which I barely graduated from, I went to community college for a bunch of years and worked at a smoothie shop and skateboarded. This is out in Orange County? Yeah. So I was, I was on the alternative lifestyle path. But of course, for someone who chooses an alternative lifestyle path, the idea of mainstream and alternative is a frustrating box to put them in anyway. So, you know, I'm 19 in community college. I'm blown away at the diversity of students in community college. Uh, I'm in, I was in all remedial courses for a while. And so the, just the idea of getting a four-year degree was kind of a slow build. And the reason to build towards it was that when you're working at a smoothie shop for a year or two uh, and you see folks around you, you knew in high school, go off to college, you start to trace your own path against that. And I eventually felt that I was headed in an odd direction. The key, one of the key turning points of my life was I interviewed to be a FedEx driver the way it works is you sign up and FedEx, like you're hired for a certain route. And eventually the dream is you buy that route from the delivery company and then you become like an entrepreneur. Wait, so they 
What do you mean that they you you have to buy the route? What does that mean? It's it's basically you're renting the route. There's I forget the exact model, but it's basically when you go into the interview and and you're like, yeah, I can read a map, I can deliver stuff. <laughs> they pitch you on this five to ten year plan, where at the end of it, you're not just get paid this hourly rate. You're the owner of a route. That was the dream that I was sold, and I was ready to sign up. Well, this is when I was at the community college and working in a smoothie shop. And I went home and told my parents I was going to be a FedEx driver. Uh, both of them went to college. Both of them are white collar professionals. So they're both pretty frustrated with this logic. And they deferred to me to be like, do whatever, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but I, and I don't know why I did. I, I remember thinking I was going to do it. So I don't know how I cracked, but I, I chose not to. And then over the next six months, year, I realized that, you know, I like to read books and there's a whole world out there. So it was like a really weird, you can't reconstruct the complexity of that moment, you know, No. of like, I really, really could have not gotten a, a, a bachelor's degree, um, but which ultimately led to a master's and then just wanting to be an academic. So for, yeah, for me, it's really, there was like a crazy couple of years after high school and during high school where I was just obstinate, just, just refusing to give in to this sort of various vague pressures around me that this is what you should do. So to, to, to be clear, my background is I grew up in Irvine, Orange County, and it's a it's pl a place known for high performing public schools because the property tax affords a really good streamline of funding to the schools. And so if you're in a high school in Irvine, California, you are presumed to be on a college track. There's a UC there, right? A UC Irvine. Yeah. Yeah. UCI is the, is it's the center of the town and there's a big master plan in theory and uh, it all builds out from that. So that, but that's, yeah, that's ultimately beautifully symbolic of it's a, let's send our kids to UCLA and Berkeley type place. And as a, as a backup, you know, UC Riverside type of place. So for me to want to be a FedEx driver was uh, a fairly um, odd and aggressive sort of approach. Right. But the but ultimately the reason I ended up in academics was because of I had this streak of of wanting to question the mainstream assumption about what made sense to the folks around me, and so I discovered that if you read books, you can basically read a book about anything, and that's actually an alternative universe, right? That's the the dream of academics, you know, rebelling against their their upper middle class, heavily white and Asian community world it makes sense you know you find academics as 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 sort of a rebellious path you know i have to ask what smoothie shop orange julius smoothie king i think i don't know if it's still i must be still around robex i don't know if you know robex i don't know what, how far they went geographically but in southern california there was a brief period where jamba juice was the clear dominator uh, you know, the team, like whatever it was, the follow-up secondary brand was Robex. It's funny to think back because the main demographic is the white collar, like work at a corporate headquarters and take your 20 minute break to get a smoothie for lunch person. And that, that of course, was the person I was trying to not be. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the other question I have is 
what courses you were taking at community college? What what sorts of things were wetting your intellectual appetite at that time? Crazy to think about community college now that I'm on the other side 20 years later and you know having gone through the humanities PhD track that we we've gone through. At the time, it felt complex and challenging. But of course, looking back, it was these were remedial courses I was taking. A professor, I wish I could remember her name, uh, explained out loud what a paragraph was. I was 19 years old, right? And like, obviously, this is like funny to a lot of the folks who went on to be an academic track person because, of course, they did well in school and they knew how to write a paragraph when they were 10. Uh, or whatever it is. But so I remember distinctly this community college pro professor was like, who had a master's in English literature and, and, and taught us fairly obscure novels, just like kind of wanted to pursue her pastime. But we were all struggling to read them. And uh, but she, she told, told us, this is how a paragraph works. And I remember my mind being like, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> like I got it. The reason why I think that's funny is that some of the stuff that we have to read in the humanities could, could use a refresher. <laughs> it's like literally you read these, you know, these French theorists and it's like they have paragraphs that go on for two, three pages. Like who taught like they're not objectively good writers. Well, that's the com the, the comedy is yeah, it is funny how um, I, I mean, it's funny how, you know, if you think about yourself as a writer, because like I've I've read your book and I know how you write which is very much how you talk. And I, I also do the same approach as a writer in non-white color settings. I'm gonna write it in a very informal, personable way. And that, that comes from me going to community college and basically like having to figure out what a paragraph was a little bit late in the game for some folks. Uh, but it really translates over. Like 10 years later when I was writing a dissertation or whatever, I thought very consciously to myself, I'm going to make this the shortest dissertation I can on purpose because I know that going longer is bad for the reader. <laughs> or that was my argument in my head. No, I mean, that makes total sense. And I think that you you summed up exactly what was going through my head, which was your community college intellectual upbringing is what grounded you once you hit academia where no one good writing doesn't come out of acad academia acad academics don't write well that was that was one of the reasons why i left was i was sick of reading things where you could sum up a half of a book in a paragraph i think there's two problems happening one there is a lot of objectively bad writing in especially scholarly journals but the one of the problems of that individuals face in the system the academic system is that they're have to model their own writing and their own research on things that get published. And that's not always, that doesn't always translate into the cleanest form of communication for the broadest audience, right? Obviously there's all those themes of specialization, jargon equals expertise, you know, all the sort of challenges that now that having been outside of academics for five, five and a half ish years, it's, it's really fascinating to think about that because I now see it as people end up getting kind of institutionally pressured, but you don't realize how strong those pressures are until you're outside. And so I don't have to publish, right, to keep my job. So I don't have to rely on various journals that a lot of which are great, but 
sometimes the the pressures from whatever it is like reviewer two whose opinion doesn't make sense to you you have to restructure your paper just to get published and it doesn't doesn't end up aligning with your vision for communication it ends up aligning with some other social science that you're not even a part of you know what i mean like it's like you're, yeah. and everyone in the game kind of i think feels that pressure definitely um, I think within the humanities, that's one of the biggest challenges that we face that uh, some people in STEM might not know. I actually, I did an interview with someone and she said something about how if you're doing a PhD, particularly in the humanities, um, how the job market is so grim for us academically, like so grim. You know, we're talking like maybe five, per, like maybe 5% of us go on to tenure, to the tenure track as humanities PhDs. She said something like, oh, those PhDs are only left for people who are intergenerationally wealthy, who, you know, want to do this fun degree. And I thought to myself, well, it's not fun. It was torture. By the end, it's a great 10 different perspectives. Like I couldn't have a thought. I had to, that I didn't think have like almost panic. I couldn't just think freely because I had to consider everything from 10 different angles. And then, oh, my advisor wants to integrate this source that doesn't really have to do with my work, but he wants me to be in his like protege line of scholarly, you know, his lineage. And it, it- you know, what I, I never made this connection until just now, but there's an interesting dynamic going on where inside academics, one of the pressures that I felt was to write an article style vessel, you know, like a, like an X number of pages with a certain type of argument and framing the literature narrowed your possibilities to three options of here's where everyone's at. They're only going to respond to X, Y, or Z. They're not going to basically let me deny the existence of X, I, and Z temporarily just to like explore a, you know, like there, you really just have to respond to what's in front of you. And there's lots of reasons for that that make sense, but at the same time, it feels constraining. Sometimes you don't want that to be your voice. You want your voice to be speaking about a different topic or in a different way. To make this concrete, one very specific thing is I. one reason I left was that I became a very niche niche expert in, in a certain world of South African history. And I foresaw a 15 to 20 year period where I only studied and write, wrote about that topic uh, to double down on my expertise over time. But that, of course, was not why I got into academics. I got in to be a generalist, humanity-style, liberal artsy vibe person. So it felt odd. But here's but here's here's my insight that I just actually made, mm-hmm. which is in contrast to academics, where your your singular voice is being constrained. In white collar work, a lot of it is the opposite, where there is no single author in most like white collar publications. They're institutions that speak through themselves. Right. And those institutions have their whole series of senior mid level managers and staff under them that collectively write a marketing piece or whatever it is. Your voice is invisible because your institution is what's speaking. And the, but so but that, of course, the you sort it swings in the opposite direction where your frustration existentially as like an author type person is is dang, I don't, I definitely don't have a voice here because I can't even remember who wrote that paragraph, (laughs) you know, like, I'm pretty sure I started that paragraph, but then three people changed it. And the topic sentence is now totally different, you know? So it's like the, the, the ability to even find authorship changes so dramatically. So to fill in the blanks here, 
how did you move from community college to PhD at Cornell? I mean, there must have been some kind of shift for you. Well, yeah, there's a, it's a it's a pretty simple formula that I think is uh, this. Guy, I'll I'll say several things at once. One is. I think there's a misperception inside and outside academics about the meaning of elite degrees. The misperception is that it stands for sharpness and intelligence at like an IQ level. What I found to be the case is it actually probably more likely reflects marathon style ability to stay in the game. Mm. And how do you be a marathon runner in the higher ed world? Of course, you have to, the big leg up is having access to resources. So I'm from an upper middle class family. I could casually go from community college to an Ivy League degree, mostly because I was, I had time to buy, you know, through my uh, living at home for several years as a community college student, my costs were very low slash they were net positive. Like I was making money as a smoothie shop employee, you know, and paying $5 a unit at the community college. So it was, it was fairly low cost. So, but the big trajectory from community college was I decided reading books was great. And then I decided that humanities and liberal arts style approach where you expose yourself to a lot of different ideas and a lot of different authors and, and, and contexts was, Mm. was, you know, it's like lots of people get sucked in. You're like, this is amazing. The world is crazy. It's so big. (laughs) historical time is so long, (laughs) you know, you're just like, wow, I got sucked in. And then of course, like lots of folks, I identified a couple of mentors along the way, some professors where I thought, wait a minute, who's this person? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm 22. I should be this person. This person is amazing. I don't know what else to do except for to say that that person is the person (laughs) like, you know, you know, it is, it's like, I mean, the most important uh, probably to narrow it down is Trevor Getz was a, an African historian at SF State. So I could have been, you know, like an ancient history scholar, some random other thing, but I specifically went with African history, partly because of my interests and partly because of the dynamism of, of this individual, Dr. Trevor Getz. Abina and the Important Men is his standout book. Shout out to uh, Abina and the Important Men. Uh, check it out if you like graphic arts or graphic artists and uh, cartoon versions of history. <laughs> uh, no, but you know, so I got draw, I drawn in, and the thing is, and this to, this kind of completes the story of community college, where you presume you're not on a path to an Ivy League degree, to getting one. The path is if you choose a subject where it's fairly it's not as competitive like African history was competitive to get into certain programs. But I, my guess has always been that I, I personally investigated a field that was, wasn't oversaturated. Like, I don't know what it takes to get a degree in U S history, but I have to assume the application rates are higher. The, you know, just because it's like the field is so like burned over basically, you know, so I, I've always thought that I chose a good field to go into where it felt like the possibilities were open to me. I could literally pretty quickly identify new things that had never been studied. But I, how are you going to come up with a dissertation topic in 19th century environmental history? You have to investigate one oil rig. You know, that's the answer. <laughs> like, 
it was it was really similar in music, although not necessarily in terms of admissions rates because we were all in the same department. So it wasn't like there was, you know, in my case, oh, there's a the Japanese music cohort is small. There it was zero, you know, at Cornell. But you know, if you are a musicologist in today's world, and I think this is speaking to pretty much exactly what you just said, if you're a Bach scholar or Beethoven, you're studying the 19th century, then you have all this discourse you have to account for, and you have to have a very innovative topic. Whereas for me, my work was about almost, especially as an ethnomusicologist by its very nature, I'm going, I'm collecting, my work was to expand the horizon of the field as opposed to... Add- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Your thing that I always thought ours are very similar in that way where... Um, we were we were both just looking to do something where we invented the idea. Totally. <laughs> like it wasn't it wasn't like you're doing the you know, you're not revising some study that was done 50 years ago on uh, revisiting the whatever labor dynamics of X. Um, Thinking about your origin story, it makes sense that you with this rebellious streak, skateboard kid, community college you know, from Robex to FedEx, found yourself as a scholar drawn to periphery. Yeah, that's right. That's that's chapter three of the memoir right there. <laughs> no, it, it's, I actually just thought of something when you were talking too, which is that one reason why I was able to navigate academics, as much as anything, it's about learning to navigate bureaucracy. Like that's really how you survive and thrive. And so actually, one way that a community college really helped me was it's very difficult to get through multiple years of community college and transfer. Uh, it's like extreme. The rates of transfer are, ins- are, are re- very low. Like this, the number of people who want to transfer is infinitely high. And the number that actually do is, mm. is you know, oddly low. Like it's awkwardly low uh, in the state of California and lots of other places. And so the key, the key thing is if you make it out and you've transferred, what that means is you learned to go to multiple advisors and get competing advice and piecing together your own transfer thing, you know, effort. Otherwise, like there's lots of programs that try to respond to these difficulties for all sorts of specific social groups, for all sorts of specific backgrounds. And they're they're great programs for what they're trying to do. But the fact is, that community colleges are very difficult to navigate. And so if you can get out, in my experience was, okay, I showed up to San Francisco State to get a bachelor's degree. I was unfazed by the registrar or whoever these random bureaucratic folks are who like, and so anyway, I really do think there is a connection where that ultimately leads into, if you're going to try to problem solve for, hey, how should I be like that professor I like? Then you work backwards from, oh, you ask them where they went to grad school and then you ask them, Hey, how'd you get in? And they were like, Oh, I met with the mentor that I wanted to study with. And then you're like, okay, well, a community college, I met with five advisors. and they, you know, So I'm going to be with five mentors to get into grad school. So you like, you just kind of come off, you build out a certain approach to institutions. Mm-hmm. That's my main skill in white collar work post-academics uh, is navigating institutions. Like that's like why I can exist financially and professionally. These are often complex institutions that you just have to to figure out who do you need to talk to, to solve your problem. (laughs) So you 
found some mentors. You found your professor that you wanted to be like, which I had the exact same thing at UChicago for my undergrad. It's funny you say that. Like literally the exact That's same right. Thing. Who was yours again? I know we've talked about this at some point. Yeah, he um he was actually a postdoc at UChicago, oh, but right. it was I took a musicology class my last quarter there and I was like, this guy has the life that I want. How do I get this? It was the exact same thing. And he said, that's right. I knew, no, I knew we had the same thing. Right. And then he ended up writing my letter of rec and he, at that point had moved to Cornell and that's. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the same. Yeah. So you met with your mentors and at this point too, and I just want to say that maybe framing it a little bit differently, what you just said, which was very interesting. Yes, this ability to navigate bureaucracy is very important in academia, but almost chicken and the egg kind of scenario, you also demonstrated a curiosity of mind and a willingness to look at the same issue, which is, I want to go to grad school. How do I do that from multiple angles, which is what humanities people do. We consider one thing from multiple angles. So you you settled on Cornell and then you got in and you started in 2011. And why did you pick Cornell? And what was it like for you when you first got there? Were you happy to be there? Yeah, this man, it's crazy to go back because, of course, it's one of those things where at the end of it, you come out and it was always natural that you would have, this would have been your outcome. But of course, when you go back to the moment, it's super uncertain, right? I was super lucky and I had played the game very well of applying to grad school. I had done... You know, if you if you're trying to get into grad school, which at this point you should talk to some folks about that, depending on your field. But the um, the way to do it is you want to network before even applying. Right. You want to have prepped even before applying. Of course, that's the ideal scenario. That's how you maximize your success. So I had already connected with several professors who had endorsed. Yes, you should apply. Yes, I would work with you. So I, I have which. Several folks around me who were kind of going on the same path at the same time, I don't think had had gotten that far in terms of building the pathways out. And so I got a little luckier and got into multiple places. Cornell, for me, the reason was, number one, the mentor that I was going to work with, Sandra Green, she is really well respected in the field of African history. She remains a really eminent figure. But anyway, she, I just was blown away at the fact that she would potentially work with me. So it was the number one, the person you're going to work with. Number two for me was Cornell uh, could, could offer more money stipend wise than, than specifically other institutions. And the key thing looking back is that already, if that was key to my decision-making, that was already an indicator that I was potentially, I'd say at risk of not becoming an academic <laughs> because I'm already prioritizing like can you keep my cost of living way more in balance you know absolutely so were you sold a bill of goods at all when you were applying to grad school like hey if you go to grad school you'll have a really good chance of being a professor especially if you go to a top you know a top program like Cornell did anyone tell you that did you have a any sense of the job market when you started uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely thought about the job market a lot. I was, so I entered in 2011. You started 2011, right? Yes. When, when I started, right? Yes. So it was, so we started 2011. I already by like 2013, 14 was, I was the most prominent voice for professional development 
Wow. And how how are we as a department making sure we're maximizing folks' chance to get a job? Any job. Yeah, any job. So I was already, like, I came in a little hot on the, like, guys, I can't just focus on my research. I got to know there's an end goal here that's positive. You know, I need to know that I'm not going to be on the job market for four years. I So anyway, I kind of already had built up this logic. It's hard to say why now looking back, but like, I remember asking people before I even applied to grad school, I asked Trevor Getz, for example, my one of my big mentors from SF State, he recommended going to University of Toronto because he knew someone there or something like that. But I remember saying, like, uh, talking to him about geography, like, hey, but wait a minute, I can't control the geography of my, what if that ends me up getting a job somewhere that I, I don't want to live? And he was like, that's not why you do this. You know, like, that's not, you know, he's being blunt and, and an honest mentor, which is you don't go to grad school with an outcome at the end. You know, your goal, your goal can't be, I want to live in a very specific region because everyone, everyone in the game knows that's not a good starting point. No. Although hearing that you were proactive about professional development has me thinking, A, I, I think that your background in community college probably lends like a certain practicality to your journey, but also, <laughs> honestly. It's true, but it's all, it, it's all I'm laughing because it is also a it's, a, it's a common but somewhat problematic stereotype. Acceptable though, acceptable. We'll take it. But also, I, I was just gonna say, um, <laughs> were you feeling at all, maybe subconsciously nervous about your chances of getting a job? Were you aware that it was your impression about this being a meritocratic system cracking at that point? Because for me, I, I thought if I do well in the grad school, I'll definitely get a job. This is a meritocracy, and obviously, that's one of the biggest illusions of this whole gig is that. It isn't a meritocracy. It's kind of a lottery, you know, who ends up getting a job at the end, right? Yeah. And, and well, in some ways, I mean, one way to think like the the most sympathetic version, which, you know, I could go back and forth in my own interpretation, but the most sympathetic version of academics as is that it's a it's a labor market. And so like any labor market, there are, you know, just based on a lot of dynamics that you can't control. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did, I do think, I knew that to be successful, a couple things would really help. One would be I study with an influential person or an influential department, right? This is something I think lots of folks know and they aim for. Right. The other one, though, was I already, I I'd showed up knowing that to structure a PhD program, that you want to win a grant, like a big year-long grant. If you're going to study Africa yes. in any and be in African studies, because I was specifically in the world of African studies, then you need to live and work in, in Africa, in, in the site that you're going to study to be, to have your legitimacy and expertise go way up in value. Right. Right. So I had already lived for a year, study abroad in South Africa. I knew the country very well. And I already went in with the goal of like, I don't know what they're called. I don't know how to get them, but I need to win a year long grant and live in South Africa, and I need it to be like a prize. So that's why I ended up getting a Fulbright Hayes, which is which is one of the hard ones to get. And yes, it is. You, the best way, just like applying to grad school, the best way to get one is to go in with a multi-year readiness plan, right? Like you don't want to like 
apply two weeks before, but like I went in knowing that they score knowledge of African languages very high, you know, but you just have to look at the structure and work backwards. So that's why, you know, our mutual friend, Andrew, I studied Zulu with him. That's how, that's how, that's why I know you is because I studied Zulu with Andrew. I remember that you got a Fulbright Hayes and you're absolutely right. I remember thinking the same thing too at the onset of grad school that when it came time to do my field work, you know, very similar to what you're describing, doing your research, doing my field work, I knew I had to be, it had to be either a Fulbright of some kind. And I got a boutique Fulbright, Fulbright MTV. Um, and I did actually apply two weeks beforehand. I got lucky. <laughs> they liked my, they liked my application, I guess. And then, or in anthropology, a prestigious grant called Wenner Gren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not getting a Fulbright or a Wenner Gren, then you're out. And I knew that going in. But for you, why why South Africa? Was it because you studied abroad there? What was your what was your research on? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's funny because it's like it's like anything. Yeah, you forget why, but it ends up being a major part of your life. But the the court there's two explanations. One is personal, and one is sociological. The sociological one. I think I always distance myself, which is to say that if you look at the universities in the U.S., the, one of the most common places to study outside of the U.S. is South Africa. So studying abroad in Cape Town with, through University of Cape Town is fairly common as a program. So there are like structural reasons why people end up studying South Africa it, the other is that th- that it's an English-speaking country. So I studied Zulu and Kosa, and I could read Zulu. Like I ended up reading Zulu documents for my dissertation. But the but the thing is, you can function so easily with English alone. So it's not just myself as an individual. Like in African studies, South Africa is aggressively dominant in terms <laughs> of number of people doing it, and it's not like something fancy about um, them as individuals. You know, in that world, if you go to the African Studies Association and you ask 20 people that study South Africa, a lot of them will have studied abroad as an undergraduate. And so for me, I went there for a year as an undergraduate for various reasons, complex to go into, but I did not end up studying. Um, there was a fairly racist Afrikaans professor that I rejected on day two and withdrew from my courses. And then I ended up traveling a bunch instead. But that meant that I ended up knowing a lot of Southern Africa and just visiting a lot of places. And I came back very prepared to like study and go more in depth on Southern Africa as a place. And, right. I, you know, and you you come back super amped. You're like, wow, I just learned about the world and I'm this young person. It's like, right. what? You know, so crazy. <laughs> That's the other thing, too, about doing a Ph.D. in a society that's not ours is that if you play your cards right, it seems like you and I were both appropriately calculative about this. I was I was thinking to myself when I was thinking of uh, dissertation topics and so forth, hey, if I play my cards right, I'm going to Japan on Cornell University's dime. That's going to happen. You <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. And well, they're not vacation. For me, I mean, given that I researched Japanese underground music, it was getting paid to party. I mean, yeah, you were hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, Weren't you also studying, as is my understanding, and again, this is from like six years ago, wasn't your work on the history of play Oh, that's in funny South yeah, yeah, that, that that came across because that is, that is accurate. So <laughs> one of my big specialties was leisure, basically, which in, in sort of social science and humanities, they, they would say leisure studies, right, <laughs> type of thing. But 
No, so my my dissertation thing was um, thing so so aggressively making light of it. No, so I studied the origins and development of mass media among Black South Africans. Wow. So in South Africa, there's there's a complex and different history of race and ethnicity compared to the U.S. So you have colored communities, uh, you have uh, black uh, South Africans with a lot of different languages being spoken, a lot of uh, different just social and political groups. And it's a lot of fluidity over whatever it is, 250 years, whatever you want to say. Right. So in that mix, the Dutch and then later the British colonized South Africa. And then in the 20th century, suddenly in one generation, you go from very few newspapers uh, and very few radios to all of a sudden a proliferation across all the cities of South Africa. And suddenly there are mass audiences for newspapers, uh, for radio, for, for film. So I looked at the history of newspapers and basically their commercialization over time. And that's why I had to basically know how to read Zulu because uh, there was a couple, the most prominent uh, widely sold newspaper in African language was in Zulu during the early 20th century. That's still the case now that Zulu is the most common uh, African language in Southern Africa. But I mean, I'll say like a couple of themes just in terms of how to structure, how I structure thinking about academics is what, what brought me in was, was generalism. What I found was specialization. Expectation and hope was you learn a whole bunch about everything. In practice, you are able to do that, but uh, you're also in practice unable to professionalize that. <laughs> like, uh, you know, when there's a job posting for, for African history, it's not even usually just African history. They usually request a regional specialist, you know, and even within that, sometimes they'll say, gender and sexuality right so that like there's a lot of specialization um that's baked into it and for me that was like a slow but very clear realization over time that hey the gap between what i'd hoped for and what's happening as a profession is is different you know like this is not right right is this what pushed you to start to question wait a minute what what's the end game here? What am I doing? Is this what I want? What was happening for you around the time where you were kind of, because ultimately you did leave the academy. What were the reasons why? What was the tipping point? If there's just one or if there's- Yeah, the, the key tipping point, point, I won't name the individual, but the history department, and, and it's not against them as an institution and nothing against any of the individuals that are involved in the department, but they were unable to promise funding to someone who I cared about and had gone on the job market a couple of times and not been successful. So this is around 2016. Uh, there's all sorts of other social and political phenomenon happening at the time that also adds into it. But basically the seeing one individual just have basically a dramatic, dramatic change in their life circumstances from like a profession and a department that I cared about that was, I was kind of, I feel like at the time I was looking for some, a reason to say I'm out. <laughs> and that was my reason. This seeing that this person cannot survive in this profession in a way that I felt should be possible, just morally, you know what I mean? Like you, it's not even institutionally. I, I've gone on to understand university budgets in a much different way. 
So I understand the limits and the challenges, but at a moral level, it was like, this is a difficult place to, in, you know, to invest the next couple of years of my life. Right. So it was less about your own chances per se, and more about an alignment of values and feeling like you could. Well, I mean, to be clear, definitely an individual choice as well, which is I got married halfway through grad school. You you were at the wedding. Uh, thanks again for coming. Though. Oh, yeah, that was wicked. I had a great time. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you for coming. <laughs> But the uh, but the end, you know, the individual pressure was building for years. And I think what the, that I use that moment of like my breaking point is more of like the epiphany that I was looking for, whereas I'm building for all of grad school. I'm increasingly saying to folks around me, including professors, hey, guys, this is this doesn't make sense. Right. Like we're <laughs> we're bottlenecking ourselves like this doesn't make sense. Right. Like, is it just me or. <laughs> yeah. And I increasingly got some answers that at first felt okay. Just a little hand waving, a little, you know, don't worry about it. That won't happen to you. And then eventually I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is, this is a structural issue. This doesn't sound. And honestly, the, the thing that you can never know is because I never went on the job market and I decided in the year leading up to preparing for the job market that I was going to invest my energy into leaving rather than going on the market. Cause you know how insanely time-consuming going on the job market it's is. a full-time job yeah it's like a full-time job so i was like i'm gonna put that full-time job into getting an another job <laughs> also too i mean these moral realizations that we have along the way i also had a couple of those too where i saw there was someone in our department and he was a, a good friend of mine he was about to lose his funding and he was an international student and it threw him in such a crisis that he he actually killed himself. That's not to say that's the only reason why he, to be frank, was, you know, he just uh, was kind of a tortured artist, I guess you could say, but yeah. I recall, yep, yep. No, that's, yeah, that's that was a really dark time. I remember that very, very specifically. That was, uh, yeah, your guys' whole department. Yeah, I mean, we were a tiny department where we have cohorts of five people. When one of them, you know, needlessly dies. That is a hard, especially hard. And I was, you know, good friends with your friends to live through that um, was hard. So for me, I mean, it was, it was like the, a more minor series of, I mean, I'll give a couple random examples that I'm sure every field has their own milestones in the last decade of of moments where crisis was on the menu. <laughs> People were like, uh-oh, all we can order is one version or the other version of craziness. It was a moment, I forget the year, it was probably like 2014 or 15, when the, the Guild for American Historians decided that their recommendation was to embargo dissertations. So that basically when you when you finish your dissertation, that an institution as a department, a department, an institution should, you know, not release that through their library for like X years, like six years or something. And I remember this being a, a catalyst for me because it marked a generational difference in thought. I just remember feeling like generationally, uh oh, the folks above me who are shaping this whole field, I'm not in sync with this. Like, this is not, there's a real cultural clash here in values and priorities. Because, you know, and they, they had their own logic that on the one hand does make sense. Their logic was 
if you release the dissertation for free through their library instantly, your chances of getting a book contract might go down. That's obviously a problem. Um, however, it's like in the context of very few people going on to get jobs and actually publishing their dissertations as a book anyway. You know, so it's like it's like the context is very troubling where we were at this. It felt like we were at a hinge point of at the time I was super into following the origins and development of public humanities and digital humanities and stuff that is kind of not as much of a buzzword anymore, but at the time was very live. Oh, yeah. 2015. You know what I mean? And like, but at that time, I remember being like, wait a minute. Does the emperor have no clothes? Or, you know, it's like, oh, no, the people I respect don't have my best interests in mind or they're not on the same page as me. Right. You know, just it was just like weirdly shocking. I, I get that. And I, I felt really similarly with music in some ways, too, because not necessarily in terms of the direction of the field per se, although that there was a huge, and, and this is actually relevant to, I think, across the humanities. So I'd be curious, and you kind of touched on it a little bit with what you were expected to teach in um, as an African historian, but toward the end of grad school in the music department, we went through this huge transition where they were trying to redefine what music meant. And on the one hand, we had the old school camp that said, you know, might've been a little bit attached to the canon of, you know, Western classical music, but also brought up a viable point of like, shouldn't, shouldn't our grad students and undergrads like know how to read music? Totally. Like, yeah, I can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah totally. I feel like, yeah. And yeah, on okay. the other yeah, yeah. camp, it was like, abolish, you know, the racist colonialist system of Western staff notation, man, we got to all do like, gender sexuality <laughs> studies, man. And it's like, I get that. But as a music department, as humanities departments, yes, we are generalists, but we shouldn't become so generalized that our field's boundaries are watered down so that being a music scholar means being a watered down gender studies scholar or a watered down anthropologist. And that's to this. And actually, I learned last year that the musicology PhD at Cornell is now called music and sound studies. And some people came to a talk that I did in Ithaca to present my book and some like latter, some PhD students, you know, third year, they're taking their qualifying exams. They still believe in it. And they're like, yeah, man, music and sound studies, man, it's the cusp. And I'm like, I just gave a talk about how I've been making my ethnomusicology PhD work out in the real world. And let me tell you guys something. Sound music and sound studies is the only thing that sounds more made up than musicology. No one knows what that is. Like you have to think about transferable skills here. You can't just say, Oh yeah, man. Think about the sound, man. Like that's, that's all. Yeah. Also I'll distance myself from this analysis by saying that on the one hand, I remember sound studies becoming, it had a little blip in like a kind of a history type world there is. And there's like histories of sound and stuff, obviously in the same vein, but the, I remember seeing scholars and just having the questions of, Oh, this is interesting. But from my view, this is, that is like, that's like what's one of the interesting things sociologically that you learn being inside academics is that you learn how knowledge is created right. in the modern university. There's a, an impulse towards novelty and there's institutional reasons for it. Mm -hmm. You can create a new journal. You can write, you can like have a new conference and you can chair the panel in the new field that you just created. So like it can be, it, it can be advantageous to, um, sort of spin off and and reword things, even if it's not necessarily fundamentally different, or at least 
it's not as different as you say it is, you know, because to me, that's, but that's like, that's like the, a lot of the senior scholars when I was that like younger 10, 15 years ago person, I definitely remember them saying, you know, this newfangled, you know, discourse is what used to be called ideology. And like to them, to like in a generational perspective, there is a sense that every 20, 30 years, the new theoretical frameworks become faddish or something. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know, to me, that's like one of those of it, it's partly an intellectual movement, but it's also partly an institutional uh, outcome, you know, like you, you, you create these types of pressures, you will get new fields and you will get a debate that is premised on someone inventing a new subfield and like, like aggressively branding it as the new thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's like these weird, but those, to me, those are like, I love that I learned that about how universities and academics works. One of the big takeaways that you can't get outside is to fully understand how that works. Cause you do have to like see people live their lives, see how much pressure they're under to get a tenure track job, to publish, to secure tenure. And if you can feel that existential pressure, then you see some of the intellectual trends or the publishing trends and you're like, all right, you know, like, I, and honestly, honestly, one reason I left is I remember feeling that pressure kind of on myself of, should I tie myself to this new subfield and try to become kind of like a leading voice in it, even though I don't fully believe in the framework. And that was when I was like, okay, well, my ability to, do that in a sincere way is out. Like I, I can't be insincere intellectually. Like that would be absurd. Yeah, totally. I mean, that makes sense. And I'm reminded of a, I think it was Socrates who said, you know, way back in ancient Greece, oh, this next generation that's coming up is going to ruin everybody. Like people have been saying that kind of thing for like literally thousands of years. But yeah, I mean, it's true. This pressure within the institution that you're speaking about, it engenders the production of knowledge in this way that, you know, rightfully creates this reputation from the outside as the ivory tower. You know, what are we really talking about here? Who is this really serving? And the pressure to get a tenure track job, the, the pressure to create innovative research. I absolutely, I agree. It does, I think, encourage professors, some or some budding professors, some junior scholars into these ways of thinking that are, Again, not really the, to me, it wasn't the point. And that's one of the reasons I left too, was like, you know, none of this is making sense anymore. None of this is about what I thought, like, I thought we were going to be all about like learning stuff and seeing my department go through a really traumatic, I heard, and I've heard from friends of mine that did go on to professorships, no disrespect to Cornell. Cornell gave me a home for seven years. I had, it was my twenties. I have no, nothing but positive associations at this point because it made me who I am today. But I I have heard from friends that have gone on to work in other departments that Cornell's music department, because it was going through this transition, was particularly toxic to use a parlance of our times. And I didn't want to be around that anymore. You know, just feeling like, especially as a woman, everyone's championing feminism. But I was told by the feminist professor at Cornell, when I was asking for advice on how, how come I'm getting bullied by the senior scholars in my field, not necessarily on campus, although there was one professor that did bully me, but at the 
big conference, the Society for Ethnomusicology conference, one of the big Japanese underground scholars, he bullied me. Like I, I met with him to get a coffee, to network, do the thing you do at conferences. And he said, what makes you think that you can compare these three music scenes, traditional, underground, and popular? I said, because they all exist in Japan today. And he said, that's not relevant. And I said, well, I think it is. And I believe in my work. And he said, and I quote, you've got it all figured out, don't you? And he walked away after treating my coffee and saying, it's okay, I've got it. I've got a lot more money than you. Like that's your opener. Yeah, sounds like sounds like you joined the right world. No, that's a that's that sounds difficult. That sounds <laughs> right, difficult. I just was like, what made you this way? <laughs> so anyway, I go back to Cornell, and my advisor, you know, he wanted to help me, and I said, hey man, this crazy interaction just happened, and he said, why don't you why don't you talk to the you know feminist music professor? She might have some you know more particular guidance that she can give you. Okay, so I went to the feminist professor, and she said, if you want to get taken seriously. You can't be so smiley. You can't be so friendly. Lose the nervous laugh. Don't giggle. And I was like, and like, I understand where she was coming from. I mean, this is a woman who is a lesbian who came of age in the academic world in like the 70s and 80s, or she probably had to have nerves of steel to just, just having to be taken seriously because it's rough out there. And to me, what happened at the Society for Ethnomusicology Conference was very much a gendered interaction. And especially like how my advisor, again, he was trying to help. They're like, oh, maybe you should talk to a woman about this. But that too was a gendered reaction. So I left all of this, you know, talking to my advisor, having this interaction with this dude, and then leaving the feminist professor's office, just feeling like, okay, according to the academic world, the problem with the treatment of junior women scholars isn't the people who are treating us badly. The problem is me. Apparently I'm the problem. So you know what? That was another turning point for me too. I was at that point, I thought, you know what? I think, I think I'm done. I'll finish up. I'll get my three letters, P, H, and D, and then I'm ahead for open waters. So what about you? You left academia in 2018. I remember when you came to town to defend, we had ourselves a little night. Yeah. 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 I remember you, you, and I got to see you and Andrew, I think we're some of the only people. No, I saw yeah, a couple other folks, uh, shout out Fritz Bartel. <laughs> oh yeah. That um, guy, he was cool. So what have you been up to since? What's your what's your career journey been like transitioning out of academia? Uh, I experimented with a couple logics. Um, I thought maybe I would try to teach community college because there's a lot more community colleges than there are univers- like research universities, right? And in California, there's just a lot more. So I remember having the idea that, oh, the market for jobs is higher. Nope. And it's probably not specialized because the courses they teach are not, not very uh, niche in comparison to a lot of like graduate seminars at universities. Right. So, so I, I remember thinking that, but I remember looking into it and um, I think I applied to one, at least, I know I tried to put together an application, but that pretty much bombed pretty quickly. You can be successful. And I have a friend who went to Yale um, and started as an adjunct at community colleges and now has a tenure track job at a community college it's possible. But the, the problem that you face in my experience is watching other folks, you probably do need to adjunct for a while and get your teaching resume up in a way you did not do during grad school. So you're looking at a multi-year plan to a job. For me, I was on the track of, I don't have multiple years. I want to start a family pretty soon. Another avenue I experimented with is I had a good friend uh, who had a, a fast growing startup business and construction management. 
So he and I cracked this plan where I was going to be the sales department because I, I like to talk to people and I could, I could go in and learn everything about federal contracting for them. And so I actually started to work with them for a couple of months and it was a great experience. I even, I represented their company to random engineers at conferences. <laughs> like it was a really jump into the deep end situation um, that at the time was just pretty, pretty bonkers. Like I knew nothing about it, but I quickly realized if the motive here is a steady stream of, of funding and I'm selling just to make money for this thing, like I'm my, you know, just daily motivation wasn't going to be there and it was going to be a struggle long-term. The other thing of course, is construction is highly cyclical as an industry. And so uh, I'm going to, I'm about to start a family on this company, which turned out to be fine and they're going to be great long-term and, 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 and succeed. So I might've blown it, but, <laughs> but the, um, but then my third option, like brainstorming wise was what about government and what about public policy? And it took like a lot of digging to find this type of thing because it's not on your radar in the humanities as a possibility. But I found that there's a fellowship that paid you for a year to be a, it's a glorified intern role in California state government. So I then mentored under the finance director and the deputy director of finance. So the Department of Finance in California state government is one of the most powerful, influential agencies. And the reason is that they put together the budgets for every other state agency. It's a centralized operation. And the the reason that's that matters is that if you structure the budget, you end up structuring a lot of policy. Because if you want to do a new program, you probably need to have some funding for it. And if you need some funding, you probably need to get it in the budget. So you have to go through the Department of Finance to get your dreams fulfilled. So uh, I got lucky in terms of I had good guidance, good mentors that directed me specifically to that department. So I targeted that department. And that was valuable for me because I then worked there for four and a half, five years doing various roles. Uh, I So I started as this like sort of executive assistant type role for a couple of months to the director. And that allowed me to see everything come together. Like I could see from the top down how the budget operates. Then I took a couple of jobs as like uh, an analyst. So you're a the budget, the staff person who oversees a department's budget. So I oversaw a couple tax agency budgets for a year. I oversaw the University of California system budget, which is massive and and uh, a big politically sensitive one for a couple of years. Uh, that was a really great experience because I had my background in academics. So I sort of knew the faculty perspective and the student perspective, but I got to see the admins perspective from universities. Then I've, I've, I, I worked for a satellite of the governor's office. The governor's office has a couple sub offices and I worked for one of those that focused on business development. Uh, so basically they want to attract businesses to California and sell our story about why doing business here is great. Um, that was an amazing experience. So in a year I got to do basically a million things. Good example is uh, there was a, there was a boom in, in extra revenue the last couple of years in California. And that meant that the legislature, 
the state legislature and the governor needed to come up with lots of ways to use all that extra money. So the, the last couple of years in California state government have been very high paced, dramatic growth in new programs, new ways to distribute money. And so I was like part of that, just basically bonanza, this complex, how do we do mm. this? Um, so now after five years in state government, I'm now working at an association membership group, which basically means that uh, the California State Association of Counties, they represent all the counties as an advocate in the legislature. So like when the counties have an issue, you know, they want to defend a bill or get a bill passed, they can help or they can, we can help them by going through us. So it's like, it, basically I've just, just done a bunch of stuff in state government is the big summary. And it's been a great opportunity to have a lot of exposure very quickly and also just I had a great opportunity with that fellowship to just network with a lot of interesting folks in Sacramento. So that was like the grad school version of my public policy career is like doing the fellowship, you know. So that was a that was an awesome opportunity. And I and I that is still a great opportunity. It's called the Capital Fellows Program. There's a there's a there's like a federalish version. I don't know if other states have it, but California has a robust state level policy fellowship. So do you feel that you've used your skills that you gained as a PhD in your career currently? I mean, of course, it's both an aggressive yes and an aggressive no, you know, <laughs> right? The, the yes is super obvious in the sense that I have the eye of an editor uh, in a way that not a lot of folks in white collar work do. They, they're the their uh, their mode of writing has been so different time constrained so like i don't know it's just a different mode of writing and the result is that there's a lot of bulky sentences and run on putting 20 nouns in one sentence that that creates a lot of complexity that's unnecessary from like an editorial perspective if you're from like a, a humanities background where you've read and written a lot you can add a lot of value pretty quickly to like, hey guys, this exact same paragraph can be so much cleaner with just a couple more, you know, breaking up the sentence or like turning it into it. So just as basic as that, like I still feel that all the time um, as a great strength that comes out of reading and writing a lot, you know? Uh, the The heavy no though is of course that I know a lot about Africa and that in California, the relevance has, has proven fairly fairly narrow and rare. The, the the ability to have to gain expertise quickly and like evaluate someone's someone's analysis and their interpretive mode, of course, that's super valuable because I can look at two arguments about a policy issue, and I can like make up in my head if you're writing a, a literature review on this policy issue, you would start to categorize approaches. And you'd be like, oh, okay, we have a enrollment heavy perspective and a whatever heavy, you know, like you start to do the analytical thing that academics teaches you in literature review style stuff. And that I think is super valuable because you could just quickly place things in space and time. Like where do they fall in to the debate here? Right. I think it's really profound that it kind of started and ends with the paragraph with you, but I have a, I have a final question here. If 
would you read would you do the phd again if you could do it over yeah there's no there's no question for two reasons first i'm stubborn <laughs> um so i refuse to admit that i've ever made a I, I would, you know, I don't want to interpret my life right in a, in a, I dramatically blew it way. No, no. So, I mean, you had to put so much time and energy and emotion and everything. Honestly, my greatest strengths, a lot of them I don't get to use day to day, which is frustrating, but those great strengths, I still value a lot. Like I, I, you know, I have the ability to write a book length analysis of some complex subject. And that's a re that's a really bizarre, rare skill yeah. that I actually am confident that I can do just because I've done it. You know what I mean? Like I did that. <laughs> so it's like to be able to break something up and study it for years and know what the other side, you're going to come up with a coherent, original take on it. I don't get to do that as a job, but I, I, I value that I like I have that in me. Um Partly for the fantasy that, you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe someday I do, I guess, <laughs> but so, but the the other reason is like I I do appreciate where I ended up. I would say that I was pretty unique for the folks around me in prioritizing questioning the job market earlier. Like I was pretty consistent early on in, hey guys, I see the end of the tunnel and I'm a little concerned. And I and I distinctly remember just having lunch at Cornell our like second year with a cohort of folks, and they're like dude, give it up, man. Like, don't complain about, it, you know, but it's like now, of course, we're all the other side 10 years later and I was right. We should have been concerned, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I, I chicken littled it a little bit, like the sky is falling, but um, I, I wouldn't take it back partly because of that. Like it actually taught me to take ownership of a really aggressively challenging life experience, which is like going through this and just to come out on the other side and make a decision that I might need to invent a new model for myself for life. Like that was a profound, it's, it's like an existentially crushing, challenging thing, but it was like a real accomplishment that I guess I succeeded in. You know what I mean? Like I came out and I got a job, I guess. So it's like. Oh yeah. I mean, you're, you're a success. You came out of denial pretty quickly and you were honest with yourself, which in and of itself is a very big accomplishment. And you made it to the other side and you have a, you know, it seems like a really interesting intellectually fulfilling job so good for you that's that's great i think we're at this interesting moment culturally now uh where the outside world is starting to recognize the crisis that is in academia and what's funny to me and i've thought of you is that the media is starting to say like oh history phds history phds are almost the like the redheaded stepchild of all of this like oh yeah like a PhD in history will get you nothing. But I think about you and I think, no, we've got ourselves a success story. You're someone that clearly, especially hearing you today, has continuously, yeah, maybe some chicken little, but A, you were right. And B, you made, to mix metaphors, lemonade out of some hardcore bitter lemons. So Lemonade out of the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, any closing remarks? No, but I mean, lovely to chat always, of course, and looking forward to, you know, talking to you again soon. We haven't spoken in a while, but always great to chat. Totally. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Brian Rutledge, PhD in history. Dr. Marshall, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you listeners for tuning in to Academic Defectors. I'm your host, Jillian Marshall. 
See you next time.